Bam 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 to Go Help Yourself, the comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. Sure. Okay. Uh, this is the um, wildly popular self-help podcast. Going viral. Where we uh, read, rate, and review uh, popular self-help books. We write them. We write them. We write the books so you don't have to. I write the books. And it opened up my mind. I write the books. No one's demanding. With more understanding. Wait, guys, we're out to it. Ace of base. Thank you. Is what I'd like to be called from now on. You well, can address me as Ace. That's Ace of base. Thank you. And I'm Lisa Linky. That's right. And I'm Misty Stinnett. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you get it. We read books. We talk about them. So that if you like what you hear... You can go buy the book, support the author, dive in more than to what we could possibly cover in an hour-long podcast. Mm -hmm. If you don't like what you're hearing and think it's total bullshit, like sometimes we do. You're welcome. You're welcome. We saved you the time and energy. And you can still have that like critical self-perspective lens that would look so cute with a little ombre frame, right? Like sunglasses. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Lisa, what have you prepared? Let's just brush right past that intro. Okay. Uh, Dear readers, for those of you who are longtime listeners, first-time callers, you are going to love today's book because it is My Stroke of Insight, A Brain Scientist's Personal Journey by Jill Bolte-Taylor, Ph.D., and if you know what I'm about to do, I'm about to say, Stam, it's truly outrageous, truly, truly, truly outrageous. Oh, Stam. Um, this is all Stam, all the time, and I'm very excited. Lisa? Yes? I need you to tell me about Jill Bolte-Taylor, because she's awesome. I will. Um, I will. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the book, and then I'm going to get into the book yes, and tell you please. all about Jill. This was written, uh, well, it was written over a few years, but it was uh, produced, <laughs> copyrighted, published? published in 2006. Words Thank is you. what we're good at. I'm in Hollywood. It was produced in 2006. <laughs> um, the paperback, it, you, it's all used now, so you can get it like $2 and up used, Ooh. new from like $7.92 on Amazon. Hardcover, 25 cents and up used. No. Um, that was the paperback price. A hardcover, 25 cents and up used. New from $6.40. The Kindles, $12.99. And what? the Audibles, $24.50. Narrated by Jill Bolte Taylor herself. Oh, see, that's cool. Mm-hmm. I always balk at the Audible price, but like, Jill Bolte Taylor is cool. Why don't you splurge? Thank you. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Bolte Taylor began to study about severe mental illnesses because she wanted to understand what makes the brain function the way that it does. <laughs> Hold on. Just so you know, Misty is... I just clasped Lisa's hand because our hands were close on the table, so I went for it. And now I'm... Sensory overload here. (laughs) This feels so intimate. Keep going. you're the one who made it weird. Here we go. (laughs) Um, Okay, so Bolte Taylor is a neuroanatomist. She's a brain... Stop stroking my hand. I'm stroking your inside. (laughs) It's creeps. Uh, Here we go. Do you want to know about Jill Bolte Taylor? I do. I love her. All right. Just so we know, Misty's done for the day in terms of presenting, and now she's... It's a party on my side of the table. And also, really quickly, I would like to admit 
close up front. I've read this book. It's been probably 10 years since Great. I read this book, but awesome. Great. Okay, bye. Well, why don't you sit back and take a nap? I will. <laughs> okay. Jill Bolte-Taylor. Oh, Misty. I was yes-anding you. I know, but we uh, we have miles go, to go. Go, go. Miles to go before I sleep. I look over and she's got her finger up her nose. Thank you. And also... Payback's a bitch, Lise. <laughs> You're right. I do Thank fucking you. lose <laughs> you fuck my mind Thank you. every episode. Continue. <clears throat> Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor <laughs> is a neuroanatomist, okay? And that means she studies the brain. And she began to... Do you know why she went into studying the brain? Mm-mm. Because she wanted to study severe mental illnesses. Her brother had mental illness, and she was so amazed when she was little about how they would have the same stimuli, and she and her brother would have completely different reactions. Oh. So she wanted to learn about brains to see what was different there and see if she could help people with mental illness. Yes. Um, so uh, she was like, it's, it's interesting why... I can make my dreams become a reality and my brother cannot connect his dreams to reality mm. and they're a delusion. Um, she began working, she went to IU undergrad, she began working in a lab in Illinois, at, uh, Indiana, Indiana University, Indiana. Mm-hmm, my uh, alma mater. Yay. Uh, she began working in a lab in Boston where they were mapping out the brain to figure out which cells communicate with which cells and on December 10, 1996, she had a stroke. A blood vessel had erupted on the left side of her brain. She had been able to witness her own brain begin to shut down and within a span of four hours, she could not speak, read, walk, write, or remember anything from her past. She compares her stroke to being like an infant again. Her personal experience with a massive stroke experienced in 1996 at the age of 37 and her subsequent eight-year recovery influenced her work as a scientist and a speaker. It is the subject of this book, My Stroke of Insight, and um, she gave the first TED Talk that ever went viral on the internet. I remember when this TED Talk came out mm-hmm. and being like, what is TED? And mm-hmm. like wanting to know so much more about it. Um, I think it was in my Psych 101 class in my freshman year of college. I'm so much older than you. Yes. And that's okay. Yes. <laughs> Life is abundant. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was in 2006. And... Um, uh, it's the way she tells this story is it's so incredible because she was studying the brain and I think she was studying strokes and we will absolutely put a link to the TED talk we in will. the show notes. And also I'll put in one to her fresh air um, uh, uh, interview with Terry Gross, which oh. I think is way better than the TED oh, talk. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I haven't heard it. Oh, I'm so excited to listen. But the the fact that this woman was studying the brain had a stroke, had this catastrophic brain event happen, and then was rehabilitated enough to come back and talk to us about it is phenomenal. It's incredible. Um, so she, uh, her book became a New York Times bestseller, was published in 30 languages. And for her book and public outreach related to strokes, she was named to the Times 100 Most Influential People in the world, uh, Times Magazine in 2008. Um, it's, it's incredible. So the book is 183 pages. It has 20 chapters and an introduction and two appendices. So it's like, they're short, short chapters. Yeah. It's a quick and interesting read. And I found this letter because I got a used book. So I found this letter tucked into my book. So somebody had given this book to someone with a letter and then they had, you know, donated or, or oh my God, sold it. Oh my God, is it juicy? It reads, <laughs> July 20, 2012. Hi, Robert. Hello. Here's the book I mentioned to you the other evening. Thank you. Since we talked, I've actually had a chance to read some of it. About time. mm -hmm, So I can tell you from first-hand experience that it's pretty good. Unfortunately, 
It's not nearly as good as I'd hoped it would be. Well, then why are you giving it to me? I'm afraid that Jill spends far too much time on her life prior to the stroke and on her personal interests, in parentheses, brain anatomy. (laughs) Still, there is much we can learn from her experiences after the stroke that relates to Martha. Her case isn't exactly the same, but she did have a stroke, was paralyzed on the right side, and lost the ability to speak. Unable to use the left side of her brain, she was locked into the wordless word world of the right brain. There's a section at the end of the book that I especially like, 40 Things I Needed the Most. Take care. Talk soon. Love, Alice. Listen, Alice, that's a Shots rather fired. casual letter. Shots fired, For what Alice. you said, Alice. Um, she's like, she talks too much about the brain. But she's a neuroanatomist. Well, yeah, also, just because you're not interested, Alice, does not mean that we're not interested. And I also think that's the whole, a lot of the point is like, who was this person before this event happened so that we can understand how crazy it is? Oh, I I hope Martha's okay. I do, too. I hope Martha's okay. I hope Robert's doing well. Alice, uh, you sound like you're taking care of shit, so it's fine. Okay, so um, I'm going to focus on what I think is the self-help perspective of this book. Yes, thank you. Which is the awareness of our right and left brains and that we, and that Dr. Bolte Taylor believes that we possess the ability to work and live within and across them both. Awesome. So um, the chapters that we'll cover, uh, one, two, and three, her pre-stroke life, simple science, and some hemispheric asymmetry. So that we'll actually talk a little bit about brain science. Awesome. Your STEM is I so excited. It. I love it. I'm going to blur four, five, and six, which are the morning of the stroke, orchestrating her rescue and her return to the still. Yep. Talk about bare to the bone and neurological intensive care. Those are chapters seven and eight. And then I'm going to blur together day two and three, the morning after Gigi comes to town, healing and preparing for surgery, uh, stereotactic craniotomy, and what I needed the most. And then I am going to talk more about uh, chapters 14 through 19. Milestones for recovery, my stroke of insight, my right and left minds, own your power, cells and multidimensional circuitry, and finding your deep inner peace. Dude. Then there's one called Tending the Garden and two appendices, the 10 assessment questions, which are wonderful for people who have had strokes, and 40 things I needed the most, which, as you know, is Alice's favorite part of the book. Thank you, Alice. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Jill. You're welcome. Okay. Um, so I'm just going to give you a quick overview of Dr. Bolte Taylor. Um, this, she is, is kind of her introduction, I think is wonderful. She said, says, every brain has a story and this is mine. Ten years ago, I was at Harvard Medical School performing research and teaching young professionals about the human brain. But on December 10, 1996, I was given a lesson of my own. That morning, I experienced a rare form of stroke in the left hemisphere of my brain, a major hemorrhage due to an undiagnosed congenital malformation in one of the blood vessels in my head erupted unexpectedly. Mm. Within four brief hours, through the eyes of a curious brain anatomist, neuroanatomist, I watched my mind completely deteriorate in its ability to process information. By the end of that morning, I could not walk, talk, read, write, or recall any of my life. Curled up into a little fetal ball, I felt my spirit surrender to my death, and it certainly never dawned on me that I would ever be capable of sharing my story with anyone. This book is a chronological documentation of the journey I took into the formless abyss of a silent mind, where the essence of my being became enfolded in a deep inner space. This book is a weaving of my academic training with personal experience and insight. As far as I'm aware, this is the first documented account of a neuroanatomist who has completely recovered from a severe brain hemorrhage. I am thrilled that these words will finally go out into the world where they might do the most good. 
Dude. So her pre-stroke life, I talked about how at, at an early age, she became fascinated with the human brain because she wondered how it could be possible that her brother and she could share the same experience, but walk right. away with totally different interpretations. Right. So she got her undergraduate at Indiana University in the late um, 70s, and she was really hungry to understand what, quote, normal was mm. at a neurological level. Um, and when she was at the IU campus, neuroscience was such a young field that it was not offered as a specialization at that oh time. Oh, my God. But by studying both physiological psychology and human biology, she learned as much as she could about the human brain. Then she went on to the Terre Haute Center for Medical Education, which was housed on the Indiana State University campus. She bypassed her master's degree and spent the next six years officially enrolled in the ISU Department of Life Science PhD program. Um, mm. and her specialty was neuroanatomy. In 1991, she received her doctorate, and then she went on to a postdoctoral research position at Harvard Medical School in the Department of Neuroscience. We get it. She's real dumb. That's what I, I wrote on the next page. She real, real dumb. <laughs> um, it was her goal to work with this woman, um, Dr. Francine M. Bennis at McLean Hospital, because she's a world-renowned expert in post-mortem investigation of the human brain as it relates to schizophrenia, because that was her, oh, yeah. her goal. Yeah, cool. um, and then the week before she began that position, she flew to Miami to attend the uh, annual conference of NAMI, the National Alliances on Mental Illness. And this is a group of people who are practitioners, family members with people who have mental illness. And it it's it's the largest grassroots organization dedicated to improving the lives of persons living with serious mental illness. Mm. And that really kind of helped her. And then uh, later the next year, she was elected to the national board of directors for that organization. Um, because of her connection, their work in her lab flourished. She like made this jingle to help people donate their brains to science because typically they would get like three, 25 to 35 a year and the scientific community could really stand 100 a year. So she was getting people to do this. Yeah, she's real dumb is what I wrote. Um, And then she, in one fell swoop, this thing happened, right? Do you remember the jingle? No, she, I think it's in the back of the book here. It's, it's, she sings it on her and plays guitar and it's like, a brain banker, and she, she did. She made the jingle to make people less worried because she feels like they. She would come in and they would feel like you want my brain, and she's like, "We'll wait for it. Like we yeah, don't want it right take now." Your time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so she makes this note. She says, "I realize you are probably eager to begin reading the personal account of the morning of the stroke, mm. but in order for you to more clearly understand what was going on, I've chosen to present some simple science in chapters two and three. Please don't let this section scare you away. And I've done it my best to keep it user friendly with lots of simple pictures of the brain in your face, Alice. Thank you. And I have to say, it is just so exciting and and awesome. And STEM nailed it." If you have uh, this book, don't skip this chapter. No, and the human brain is amazing. Listen, it is the only organ to ever have named itself. Thank you. Do you see on the cover there's... Um, oh, it's a really colorful drawing of a brain, and every single section is a different color. Because this woman also did stained glass, and that is a stained glass image she made of a brain. Oh, my God. Isn't that cool? She's the, she is the She's coolest. She's so cool. Um, okay, so... Um, Can I say one thing before we move on? Yeah. What I think is so interesting, which I'm sure we'll hear a little bit more of in the book, though, is that she her language in the introduction that you just read is she says, I watched 
curiously as my brain deteriorated, which just reminds me of what Eckhart Tolle keeps Mm -hmm. saying is that we are the awareness that is aware. There Mm -hmm. is an awareness, Mm -hmm. right? So it sounds like she was still present in her body, Mm -hmm. whatever that is, this Mm -hmm. higher presence. Exactly. As this is happening. So um, this is chapter two, Simple Science, and I'm just going to give you a couple bits of information about the brain. The human brain exists in an ongoing state of change. And I wrote, we're not done cooking. Even the brains (laughs) of our ancestors of 2,000 or 4,000 years ago do not look identical to the brains of today. The development of language, for example, has altered our brain's anatomical structure and cellular networks. Most of the different types of cells in our body die and are replaced every few weeks or months. However, Mm. neurons, the primary cell of the nervous system, do not multiply for the most part after we are born. That means that the majority of neurons in your brain today are as old as you are. Mm. This longevity of neurons partially accounts for why, why we feel pretty much the same on the inside at the age of 10 as we do at 30 or 77. Is that why? Yeah. Listen, have I ever told you my dad's joke? He was like, you know, no matter how old I get, I still feel like a 20-year-old. Yeah. But there's never one around. Okay. <laughs> um, Sorry, I The to. cells in our brain are the same, but over time, their connections change based upon their and our experience. Wow. So the human nervous system is a wonderfully dynamic entity composed of an estimated one trillion cells. Casual. The human adult body is composed of approximately 50 trillion cells. And to put some context around that, that your um, the human nervous system, to get an idea for how enormous one trillion is, there are approximately, let's say at this time, it was six billion people on the planet. And we would have to multiply all six billion people 166 times just to make up the number of cells combining to create one single nervous system. And to do 50 trillion cells in a single body, you would have to multiply every person on Earth 8,333 times in 2006. Listen, I think we said it best in Pima Chodron, uh, when things fall apart, I'm tiny. I'm vast. <laughs> right? How you. can we be so compact and yet so, so spacious? Um, uh, I think that was in When Things Fall Apart. Yeah. Nope. I'm sorry. That was in um, A New Earth. A New Earth. Oh, it was. It was. Because it was all ducks. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. So basically she says we evolve and when evolution happens, it goes from lesser complexity to more complexity. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as members of the same human species, 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 you and I share all but 0.01%, one one hundredth of 1% of identical genetic sequences. So biologically as a species, you and I, Misty, are virtually identical to one another at the level of our genes, 99.99%. But looking around at the diversity within our human race, it's obvious that 0.01% accounts for significant difference on how we look, think, and behave. Wow. Yeah. What? So the portion of our brain that separates us from, oh, and so I wrote, this explains why it seems so weird that people don't see our way of thinking. In that tiny one hundredth of one percent is like such huge difference. Yeah. Unending combinations. Unending. Yeah. So the portion of our brain that separates from all other mammals is the outer, undulated, and convoluted cerebral cortex. Mm -hmm. Although other mammals do have a cerebral cortex, the human cortex has approximately twice the thickness and is believed to have twice the function. Mm. I like my cortex thick. Our cerebral cortex is divided into two major hemispheres, which Mm -hmm. complement one another in function. Okay. The two hemispheres communicate with one another through the highway for information transfer, the corpus callosum. 
Um, although each hemisphere is different in the types of information it processes, when the two are connected to one another, they work together to generate a single seamless perception of the world. So Dude. everybody is used to their... Um, We've heard right brain and left brain. Um, she talks a lot about the limbic system. Well, really quickly, just for those who haven't heard of right brain and left brain. Oh, we'll talk about it. Okay. Mm-hmm. But thank you. Great. She she does it much better than Great. I think. Right. Love it. Um, the limbic system functions by placing an affect or emotion or information streaming in through our senses. Hmm. We often refer to this as the reptilian brain or the emotional brain. When we are newborns, these cells become wired together in response to sensory stimulation. It is interesting to note that although our limbic system functions throughout our lifetime, it does not mature. As a result, when our emotional (laughs) buttons are pushed, we retain the ability to react to incoming stimulation as though we were a two-year-old, even when we're adults. Oh, yeah. No, this is the whole reason that we are fucked up and in therapy because it's like, why did I have that emotional triggering? Why do I still react right? the way and I do? And when we talk about making changes we're like, and we talk about the, those paths and our, those you know, neural pathways being so formed because mm-hmm. they're from our reptilian brain. Yeah. Um, it might be of interest to note that all of today's, quote, brain-based learning techniques used in classrooms through elementary and high school, capitalize on what neuroscientists understand about the functions of the limbic system. With these learning techniques, we try to transform our classrooms into environments that feel safe and familiar. So mm. we sit here at each, we walk in a line here. We have a schedule. We do things yeah, this a certain yeah, way. Yeah, so we know what to expect. The objective is to create an environment where the brain, the brain's fear and rage response, the amygdala, is not triggered. The primary job of the amygdala Fear is to rage. scan all incoming stimulation in this immediate moment and determine the level of safety. One of the jobs of the um, cingulate gyrus of the limbic system is to focus the brain's attention. So if the if the amygdala is constantly like, what's happening, what's happening, what's happening, we can't concentrate. Oh my so God. that's why these brain-based learning is like, you understand what's happening. It's a pattern. It's a familiar pattern. You know what happens next. We all can remain calm so we can focus and learn. So is that why when you're having a panic attack or like when you're having stage fright, it's like you can't focus, you can't calm down. It's like almost biologically impossible. Exactly. Because your brain is trying to take care of you. Because it doesn't know the difference between a bear or a high stakes conversation at work. Yeah. It doesn't know. It doesn't know. Because your physiological response feels the same. Well, and also amygdala is a good name for a dog. Nope. Um, Okay, here's a cool piece of information. (laughs) Sensory information streams in through our sensory systems and is immediately processed through our limbic system. By the time a message reaches our cerebral cortex for higher thinking, we've already placed a feeling upon how we view that stimulation. Is this pain or is this pleasure? Although many of us think of ourselves as thinking creatures that feel, biologically we are feeling creatures that think. Oh Brene Brown God. talked about this. Wasn't it Brene Brown? Sure. Yeah, I think sounds it was. right. Uh, okay. Wait, that's, I mean, that's amazing. That's like, that's the crux of it. So it sounds like, and so the brain really works in that dichotomy the pleasure or pain, safety or danger. Yeah, it has to, because it's making snap judgments, right? Like if you are touched, if I touch you, immediately you're, you have to make a decision. You're, you're getting information and, and my the, finger resting on your arm. Listen. 
Lisa reached across the table and touched my arm, and I'm about to take her out. So do you know what I mean? Like you have, you it's very threatening. Within nanoseconds, you are making yes, a decision yes. because imagine if you put your hand on a hot stove, you don't have time to go. Hmm. Well, that's really interesting because I wonder with like PTSD, you know, like if you reach across and touch me, is that why sometimes someone will have a huge reaction to you know? Yeah, she talks about because sometimes you get pl- you you get stuck in these loops. Wow. Okay, so here she says this is why I like because she gets into. Kind of a woo-woo. Yes. Are you ready for this? Yes. As information processing machines, our ability to process data about the external world begins at the level of sensory perception. Although most of us are rarely aware of it, our sensory receptors are designed to detect information at the energy level. (gasps) Because everything around us, the air we breathe, even the materials we use to build with, are composed of spinning and vibrating atomic particles. You and I are literally swimming in a turbulent sea of electromagnetic fields. We are part of it. We are enveloped within it. And through our sensory apparatus, we experience what is. So she's saying everything is energy. I said, Jill, I did not expect that from you. I mean, my mouth is on the floor because I know this. Like, we know everything's made up of atoms. We know. You know what I mean? But it, it it's nice to hear. For I'm really liking what I'm hearing so far because in this section it's like, oh, no, you are dealing with lots of energies and you're not crazy to get a bad vibe from someone or something. Or if you get tinglys on the back of your neck, pay attention to it because it is scientific. Yeah, and I think that, like, so often we think there's space between us. Yeah. And there is, but it's not empty. Yeah, it's not empty. And also think about this. Two things can never actually really touch. That's right. Which is really interesting. But also, I really love what she says about the brain because hearing that we are, like, feeling beings who have to think and we process through these really complex systems who are always scanning for danger and trying to survive, it it makes me feel relieved because I'm going, oh, my brain's just functioning the way it can. It's it makes me not feel like you. me inside is somehow fucked up for that or like it seems to like explain a lot of neuroses, yes. which is cool. Are you ready to talk about strokes? Oh my God, I'm so ready. Stroke is the number one disabler in our society and the number three killer as of 2006. I wow. don't know what it is now. Yeah. Because stroke Selfies. occurs, f- thank you, because stroke occurs four times more frequently in the left cerebral hemisphere, our ability to create or understand language is often compromised. Mm. That's where your language center is. It's mm-hmm. in your left brain. Oh, really quickly. Yeah. Uh, I uh, worked in a hospital cafeteria in high school for most, most of high school. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and we would deliver trays to patients was part of the job. And I remember this one woman so distinctly. She had had a stroke and she couldn't talk, but she could sing. And so she was on her right brain. Yeah. So she'd go, can I get a blanket? Like kind of like in a military. And she'd go, can I get more water? And she'd sing everything like that because that was her way of communicating. That's amazing. Really interesting. The term stroke refers to a problem with the blood vessels carrying oxygen to the cells of the brain. And there are basically two types, ischemic and hemorrhagic. According to the American Stroke Association, the ischemic stroke accounts for approximately 83% of all strokes. With ischemic stroke, the blood clot travels into the artery, and arteries get smaller and smaller the further they go, until it reaches the tapered diameter of the artery Mm -hmm. and then becomes too small for the clot to pass any further. And the blood clot blocks the flow of oxygen-rich blood to the cells, and then the brain cells become traumatized and often die. And since neurons typically do not regenerate, the dead neurons are not replaced, okay? Because every brain is unique in its neurological wiring, every brain is unique in its ability to recover from trauma. Wow. So you can't treat every patient the same. 
Wow. Um, A hemorrhagic stroke occurs when blood escapes from the arteries and floods into the brain. Mm -hmm. 17% of all strokes are hemorrhagic. Blood is toxic to neurons. Thank Mm. you, Stan. Blood is toxic to neurons when it comes in direct contact with them. So any leak or vascular blowout can have devastating effects on the brain. Mm. One form of a stroke, the aneurysm, forms when there is a weakening in the wall of a blood vessel that consequently balloons out. Mm-hmm. Um, an arterio, oh, sorry, an arteriovenous malformation (AVM) is a rare form of hemorrhagic stroke. Mm. It is a congenital, it's a congenital disorder whereby an individual is born with an abnormal arterial configuration. So normally, there's like artery, capillary, vein, um, but in an AVM, the capillary is like not. There's like a twist up in the capillary, mm-hmm. and that's the kind that she had. Wow. Real quickly said, did yeah. you happen to read Amelia Clark um, recently published an article? Amelia Clark from Game of Thrones. She yeah. plays Khaleesi. Yeah. She had two aneurysms. Yeah. When she it was, was like first starting, right? She was like 24. It, her first one happened right after filming season one of Game of Thrones. So like all her her dreams came true. And then she had this stroke at the gym one day and she almost died. Um, and then... They were keeping a close eye on it, and it was, like, after season three, and another capillary had, like, grown really big, and they went in to try and take care of it, and the surgery was not successful. And that time, the first time they had done this, like, less invasive surgery up through your artery and your thigh, and then this time they had to actually open her skull and do the surgery. But it's it affects everybody. And if you're interested in reading that, we'll put a link to the the article in our show notes for that as well. Awesome. Um. Although AVM accounts for only 2% of all hemorrhagic strokes, it's the most common form of a stroke that strikes people during their prime years of life. Oh, my God. 25 to 45. And she was 37 when hers blew. So these are the warning signs of a stroke. And it's easy to remember because it's the, um, what is that called when you use the letters of something you spell it out? Um, Like an acronym? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a mnemonic, a learning mnemonic. That's it, too. Stroke. S, speech, Mm. any problems with language. Mm. T, tingling or any numbness in the body. R, remember or any problems with memory. O, off balance, problems with coordination. K, killer headache. E, eyes or any problems with vision. Call 911 if you have any of these. Mm. I remember I was in um, Studio City. It was a hot, hot day. It was like the first year after I'd moved here. And I was driving by and there was a pretty bad accident and I pulled over um, and I got out to see what I could do and this woman had plowed into the car in front of her at like a stoplight oh no and she had a bunch of medicines but I, by the time the EMTs got there, I just, like, stood with my umbrella over her because they got her over to the thing. It was just so fucking hot <sighs> and um, when the EMTs came, they did a basic three thing. They asked her to say her name and to smile and they held her two hands and asked her to squeeze, which is a really quick way to to determine if she was having a stroke, which she was. Because to smile, if one side droops and one side goes up, you can tell. And to say her name, if she's slurring her speech. Yes. And then to tell by grasping if that. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was really intense. Okay, we're on to chapter three. And this is, I'm spending a lot of time on these, but I'll blow through. Um, Hemispheric asymmetries. Uh Uh-huh. This is where we talk about our two hemispheres. Great. All right. Right and left. So what they found is that like, Split brain patients, like people who have 
either were born with only one half of their brain, oh but still learn how to function. Whoa. Um, it's pretty interesting. So um, I didn't know that was a thing. Mm-hmm. Because our two hemispheres are so neural, neuronally integrated via that little middle part, the corpus mm-hmm. callosum, virtually— I think it's colossum. Thank you, colossum. That makes more sense. Virtually every cognitive behavior we exhibit involves activity in both hemispheres. Mm-hmm. They simply do it differently. Mm. So as a result, the world of science supports the idea that the relationship between the two hemispheres is more appropriately viewed as two complementary halves of a whole rather than two individual identities or entities. Isn't that a great metaphor for so many things? It really is. So our right hemisphere, which controls the left half of our body, um, and she also mentions we are typically left brain or right brain dominant, but that doesn't have to do with like hand dominance. Oh, so that's an that's a, an outdated way of thinking. It is, um, because virtually everyone who is right-handed is left hemisphere. Like eighty-five percent of the population is left hemisphere dominant, but also sixty percent of left-handed people are also left hemisphere dominant. Mm, okay. So our right hemisphere controls um, functions like a parallel processor. Mm. So independent streams of information simultaneously burst into our brain from all of our sensory systems, mm-hmm. moment by moment. Our right brain creates a master collage of what this moment in time looks like, sounds like, tastes like, smells like, and feels mm. like. Moments don't come and go in a rush, but rather are rich with sensations, thoughts, emotions, and often physiological responses. Thanks to the skills of our right mind, we are capable of remembering isolated moments with uncanny clarity mm. and accuracy. And most of us can remember where we were and how we felt when we saw the collapse of the World Trade Center. I was just thinking that. Yes. I can, I'm back in the classroom in the dark with the brown carpet. Our right hemisphere is designed to remember things as they relate to one another. Mm. To the right mind, no time exists other than the present moment, and each moment is vibrant with with sensation. The experience of joy happens in the present moment. Our perception and experience of connection with something that is greater than ourselves occurs in the present moment. To our right mind, the moment of now is timeless and abundant. In contrast, our left hemisphere is completely different in the way that it processes information. It takes each of those rich and complex moments created by the right hemisphere and strings them together in timely succession. Mm. By organizing details in a linear and methodical methodical configuration, our left brain manifests the concept of time, whereby our moments are divided into past, present, and future. Mm. So right brain is always now. Left brain is always linear. And is it left is pretty analytical information spreadsheets. And then right is like creativity, language, that kind of thing. Or no, left is language. Yes. Just opposite to how our right brain, uh, right hemisphere thinks in pictures and perceives the big picture, our left mind thrives on details, details, and more details about those details. Mm. Our Our left hemisphere language centers use words to describe, define, categorize, and communicate about everything. Mm -hmm. They break the big picture perception of the present moment into manageable and comparable bits of data so that they can talk about it. Um, Via our left hemisphere language centers, our mind speaks to us constantly. A phenomenon I refer to as brain chatter. Thank you. This is what Eckhart Tolle would say is the ego, right? The self. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wait, what, can you read that last sentence again? Via our left hemisphere language centers, our mind speaks to us constantly. A phenomenon I refer to as brain chatter. So if you had damage to that center of your brain, 
You have a quiet mind. You'll hear about it. Mm. She says, it is that voice reminding you to pick up bananas on your way home and calculating intelligence and that calculating intelligence that knows when you have to do your laundry. One of the jobs of our left hemisphere language centers <laughs> is, to vi- is to define ourself by saying, I am. Without those cells performing their job, you would forget who you are and lose track of your life and your identity. And maybe be blissfully happy wandering around, not... Sure, you'd also probably die because you would forget that green means go and red means stop. But you'd be happy in that For those 43 seconds. Yes. Um, So (laughs) the type of stroke she experienced was a severe hemorrhage in the left hemisphere of her brain due to an undiagnosed AVM. On the morning of the stroke, this massive hemorrhage rendered her so completely disabled that she describes herself as an infant in a woman's body. All right. So I'm going to just briefly give you the overview of what happened on the morning of the stroke. Yes. But if you are fascinated by this, I implore you to get this book. I remember reading this chapter. I could not put it down. So she's in the shower and all of a sudden she is feel- well, She woke up with like a headache and she mm-hmm. was working out and then she was like, this feels weird. I feel like I'm outside of my body. So mm-hmm. she was already having some sensory um, problems, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, her right brain was experiencing it, but her left brain couldn't process what what she was feeling. Right. It couldn't right. put so it. So much confusion. That's right. So she was in the shower and all of a sudden she was like, I couldn't tell, and because left brain is spatial awareness, mm. she couldn't tell like where the shower stopped and where she began. Oh and all God. of a sudden, she was like, "I am having a fucking stroke." Mm-hmm. And so then she was like, "This is really cool," and also like painful. Yeah, yeah, and, like, yeah. yeah. The, the, she would suddenly like feel a burst of water on her, and it was like overwhelming, right? Like she couldn't because she was only in her right brain. She was like, "Ah, it's overwhelming." Oh my God! But it, it came to her. And she was like, "I have to get help." So she gets out, and like her her right arm is numb and she's like getting out she gets to the phone and she realizes like I have to call for help she wanted to go to her bed but she's like I can't yeah so she gets to the phone and she can't process numbers yeah they're just totally uh, alien symbols that's right because her language center is fucked it's blown out so she has these what she called waves of clarity and like every 20 minutes this wave of clarity would come through and she could think every 20 minutes or so what she thinks she has no she has no awareness of time oh at this my moment. god but she was like what is my number what is my number what is my number what is work number right to harvard mm-hmm. right yeah and um at a wave of clarity the last four the last four digits of the extension comes through and she like tries to squiggle those down you know um and then she has to wait for like the area code and then she has to wait for like the prefix, right? Oh my God. And each time she's oh. like trying to remove everything on the desk because in her right brain she's like, that is so cool. Let me touch that. What should I do with this? Everything. Oh my God. So she's, this is, it's fucking amazing. You have to read this chapter, oh. these chapters. So then she does that and she, the person who picks up recognized her voice and of course what she thinks she's saying is I'm Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. I'm having a stroke. Yes. But because her language center is screwed, it's just like sound. Thank God somebody picked they up. They recognized her voice and they understood. They're like, okay, we're coming. Like, we'll come to get you. Yes. Then she wanted to call her doctor because she was like, I know that this woman will help me because this woman is like this brain. Meanwhile, she's not calling 911. She's just like she trying to get through it. Well, that's, yeah. that's a logical process. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. doesn't have that. Yeah. So she has a stack of um, business cards and she re- she can't diagnosed names but she remembers the logo of the insignia because because that's a creative art she can think in a picture oh my god so she starts going through and then she finds it and then she has to match the squiggle number on the card to the squiggle number on the phone and hold hold it like when she hits one she has to put her finger over it so she doesn't go back like it takes forever she again is asking like to the receptionist and like barely getting these words out and trying so hard 
And that her doctor tells her where to go, like what hospital to go to. And she keeps saying like, again, because it's when the information is coming in, she cannot process it. Oh, my God. It's, it's fascinating. It's brilliant. I can't. I, oh, my God. God. It's incredibly. It's inc- and she talks about it because I'm she, on the edge of my seat. Because like, she's an amazing um, neuroanatomist, she knows step by step where the brain bleed happened, what was going on, and um, why it was happening, and why each of these things was happening. It's, oh it's incredible. Oh my god! So what was really cool is now we're to, uh, into this chapter, bare to the bone, and I'm just gonna read this section. She says. I remember that first day of the stroke with terrific bittersweetness. In the absence of the normal functioning of my left orientation association area, my perception of my physical boundaries was no longer limited to where my skin met air. I felt like a genie liberated from its bottle. Mm. The energy of my spirit seemed to flow like a great whale gliding through a sea of silent euphoria. Finer than the finest of pleasures we can experience as physical beings, this absence of physical boundary was one of glorious bliss. As my consciousness dwelled in a flow of sweet tranquility, it was obvious to me that I would never be able to squeeze the enormous enorm- enormousness of my spirit back inside this tiny cellular matrix. Tiny and vast. Yes. And she was experiencing enormous grief for the death of her left hemisphere consciousness, the woman she had been. She concurrently felt this tremendous relief. She had spent a lifetime of 37 years being enthusiastically committed to doing, doing, doing lots of stuff at a very fast pace. On this special day, I learned the meaning of simply being. She I said, am mesmerized. I, know. I mean, this is Isn't wild. It's so fascinating. Thank God she was a neuroanatomist, right? I, I mean, it's uh, the odds. I just, wow. We talk about this book a lot in, in the acting studio where I teach because we want actors to get into their right brain to study yes. text. And, yes. You know, the beautiful thing is that she decides to come back. She decides to go through eight years of rehab to come back and tell us. And the ways to rebuild her brain. Yes. Yeah. And, and like that we have this capability of being in this vast connectedness yeah Yeah. she says all i could perceive was right here right now and it was beautiful my entire self-concept shifted as i no longer perceived myself as a single a solid an entity with boundaries that separated me from the entities around me i understood that at the most elementary level i am a fluid of course i am a fluid everything around us about us among us within us and between us is made up of atoms and molecules vibrating in space although the ego center of our language center prefers defining ourself as individual and solid most of us are aware that we're made up of trillions of cells gallons of water and ultimately everything about us exists in a constant and dynamic state of activity my left hemisphere had been trained to perceive myself as a solid separate from others now released from that restrictive circuitry my right hemisphere relished in its attachment into the eternal flow. I was no longer isolated and alone. My soul was as big as the universe and frolicked with glee in a boundless sea. Oh my God. I am just like, who knew that STEM could be like one of the most profound ways of looking at self-help or like the spiritual. And she acknowledges Without the judgment of my left brain saying that I am a solid, my perception of myself returned to this natural state of fluidity, right? This is what we keep hearing over and over and over in the things we are reading lately. That yeah. we're one, that we're connected, yes. that it's all an illusion, yes. that it's like, wow. Yes. So she says, despite my neurological trauma, an unforgettable sense of peace pervaded my entire being and I felt calm. 
Although I rejoiced in my perception of connection to all that is, I shuddered at the awareness that I was no longer a normal human being. Mm. How on earth would I exist as a member of the human race with this heightened perception that we are each a part of it all and that the life force energy within each of us contains the power of the universe? How could I fit in with our society when I walk the earth with no fear? I was, by anyone's standard, no longer normal. In my own unique way, I had become severely mentally ill. And I must say there was both freedom and challenge for me in recognizing that our perception of the external world and in our relationship to it is a product of our neurological circuitry. For all those years of my life, I really had been a figment of my own imagination. Oh, my God. She is the coolest person I've ever heard of. She says, I mean, she really is like, I truly felt like my conscious mind was so big that I would never be able to squeeze it back into the skin of my body. Oh, my God. And again, I am astounded that while this is going on, while she is, her words, severely mentally ill, she's still aware of all these concepts and like still. 100%. Wow. Um, A little bit. I think now she's like used therapy. She can look back on it to go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But still. Um, So we're on chapter eight, neurological intensive care. She says, the most notable difference between my pre- and post-stroke cognitive experience was the dramatic silence that had taken up residency inside my head. Mm. It wasn't that I could not think anymore. I just didn't think in the same way. The effort it took for me to pay attention to what someone was saying was like the effort it takes to pay attention to someone who was speaking on a cell phone with a bad connection. Mm. And her ability to cognate was erroneously assessed by how quickly I could recall information rather than by how my mind strategized to recover the information it had. So she gives an example of like somebody says, who is the president of the United States? And what she had to do was go president, president. What does that mean? President, president, right? Like Mm -hmm. she keeps describing her brain as like, a thousand file cabinets. Yeah. And she has to like go to them, but she has to figure out which one to go to. Yeah. So if because she couldn't answer Bill Clinton yeah. right away, they the were time, like, well, right. she's got a severe cognitive. But she's like, it just would take her a while. You know, she would she's get like, okay, I know connections. what she's like, okay, I know what president is now. What is United States? Right. Like it just took her a while to do it. And mm-hmm. she's like, I was solving the problem. I just wasn't doing it in the way that they thought. Yeah. Wow. So she says, to someone looking on, I may have been judged as less than what I had been before because I couldn't process information like a normal person. I was saddened by the inability of the medical community to know how to communicate with someone in my condition. Stroke is the number one disabler in our society, and four times more strokes occur in the left hemisphere. She says, I think it is vitally important that stroke survivors share and communicate about how each of their brains strategized recovery. Mm. So I also think it's important for us to know that when we meet somebody who's had a stroke, to know that... They may just be thinking differently than they did before. Yeah. Um, So the morning after, she says, making the decision to recover was a difficult, complicated, and cognitive choice for me. On the one hand, I loved the bliss of drifting in the current and eternal flow. Who wouldn't? It was beautiful there. Um, And she says, honestly, there were certain aspects of my new experience that I preferred over the way I had been before. But... Ultimately, she wanted to come back and teach us all this beautiful stuff, right? That's so interesting. It is. Because I think there's so much stigma around mental illness, and we all sort of, 
you know, there's a lot of pitying happening and a lot, you know. Yeah. And it's like for her to be like, no, I preferred a lot of this is yes. so fascinating. And then she talks about how her mom, which they call Gigi, comes and she they kept saying Gigi's coming. And she's like, I don't know what that is, but I think it sounds great um, in her mind. <laughs> um, and her mom came and helped her heal. And her mom was very protective of her. She talks about energy vampires. And she couldn't communicate and she couldn't understand what people were saying, but she could understand their intonation and their intention. Tell me if this is from the book yeah. because this is so vivid in my memory. She talks about how her mom climbed into the hospital bed the with her. The first thing she did. Her mom got her. there and just held her like a little girl. And I look at this. I yeah. have goosebumps all over my arms. Yeah, she says, I was so lucky that I got to actually be an infant twice to my mother. Yeah. Yeah. And her mom just knew exactly what she fucking yeah. needed. And she went through like a really different... Um, she says, we were both respectful of what I needed to do or not do to recover. Um, she wow. slept a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah. And she says, opening the old files in my mind was a delicate process, right? It would take a lot to restore all these filing cabinets in my brain. Yeah. And her mom really taught her again like she was an infant and a toddler, like teaching her what letters were, what, you know, she brought age, like, big puzzles and she had to relearn everything. You know it's what I mean? Amazing. I it really cry. was. I know. It was so cool. Um, and then she had a surgery to repair that um, blowout, that A ADM. brain surgery? Mm-hmm. And you can see the scar that she has. <gasps> oh, my it's gosh. It's a nine-inch scar. Mm-hmm. Wow, it kind of um, it kind of like wraps around her ear. It's like a few inches above her ear, and it kind of goes like up around her ear and back down her. Yes. Um, and then she says, we're in chapter 13, what I needed the most. And this is basically for how she wanted to be assessed and what she um, needed to recover. Mm. But basically, she says, she says, bottom line, I was willing to endure the agony well, she has to ask the question, was I willing to endure the agony of recovery? And right. then she was like, yeah. She said, "My, um, I imagined a, the world filled with happy and peaceful people, and I became motivated to endure the agony I would have to face in the name of recovery. My stroke of insight would be, peace is only a thought away, and all we have to do to access it is silence the voice of our dominating left mind. Wow. Um, so she has some really cool things about what she needed and things like, I desperately needed people to treat me as though I would recover completely. Um, mm, that's huge. Honoring the healing power of sleep, you know, offer me multiple choice questions and never ask me yes, no to help her brain. So like cool stuff with that. Um that's amazing. And, and this one I liked. This was de definitely self-help. She said, one of the fundamental secrets to my success was that I made the cognitive choice to stay out of my own way during the process of recovery. An attitude of gratitude goes a long way when it comes to physical and emotional healing. I enjoyed a lot of my recovery experience as one process flowed naturally into another. I found that as my abilities increased, so did my perception of the world. Eventually, I was like a toddler wanting to go out and explore as long as my mommy wasn't too far away. I tried a lot of new things, had a lot of successes, and tried some things I wasn't ready for yet. But I made the choice to stay out of my own way emotionally, and that meant being very careful about my self-talk. It would have been really easy a thousand times a day to feel as though I was less than who I was before. I had, after all, lost my mind and therefore had legitimate reason to feel sorry for myself. But fortunately, my right mind's joy and celebration were so strong that they didn't want to be displaced by the feeling that went along with self-depreciation, self-pity, or depression. And I thought... That applies to when we're trying all this new stuff and self-help. Thank you. Yes. And and the brain is so elastic because what you 
what you give it to think about strengthens neural connections. Yeah. So if you want to keep your left hemisphere strong, do puzzles, crosswords, yeah. cryptoquips, that kind of thing, yeah. analytical stuff. But it's it also already. shows that we can <laughs> meditate yeah. and we we can be mindful and we can paint and we can do things that strengthen the... Yes. Like, it's already thing. good at negative self-talk. We don't need to give it more exercise at that. Yeah. And is this... is Forgive me if I'm jumping into something you're about to say, but is this the chapter where she chooses to, when she's rebuilding her brain, leave out the judgment she had before? We're about to hit that. Great. You are right. Awesome. So we just scrolled through chapters 9, uh, 10, 11, 12, and 13. And now we're going to talk a little bit about milestones for recovery. Awesome. So she says, what a wonderful gift this stroke had been in permitting me to pick and choose who I was and how I wanted to be in this world. Before the stroke, I believed I was a product of this brain and that I had minimal say about how I felt or what I thought. Since the hemorrhage, my eyes have been open to how much choice I actually have about what goes on in between my ears. Mm. Um, so she says... She felt like the biggest complaint was that when she was taking Dilantin... Um, to help prevent seizures and stuff. Mm. She felt like the medicine masked her ability to know what it felt like to be her anymore. Oh, she yeah. was already a stranger of herself. And so she says, "I'm because of this experience, I'm much more sensitive to why some people choose insanity over the side effects of their antipsychotic medications. Yeah. She says, I was fortunate that my doctors agreed I could take my entire dose at night before I went to bed. So by the morning, my mind felt much clearer. Oh, that's great. She took that that's medicine for compromise. almost two full years after surgery. Well, you know, and thank goodness she had a doctor who was willing to do that. Yes. Yeah, it sounds like she was probably treated by the best of the best of the, you know, Harvard medical community as well. Exactly. Um, and then she talks about how she, in her new, her post-stroke self, she kind of changed some of the things. She didn't want to bring some of the old things behind. Yes. Yes. Um, so could she value money without hooking into the neurological loops of lack, greed, or selfishness? Mm. Could I regain my personal power in the world, play the game of hierarchy and not and not lose my sense of compassion or perception of equality. So yeah. she really, she's like, frankly, I didn't want to give up nirvana. What price would my right hemisphere consciousness have to pay so I could once again be judged as normal? Mm. So she says, the two halves of my brain don't just perceive and think in different ways, but they demonstrate different values based upon the types of information they perceive right. and thus exhibit different personalities. Right. She says, my stroke of insight is that the core of my right hemisphere consciousness is a character that is directly connected to my feeling of deep inner peace. It is completely committed to the expression of peace, love, joy, and compassion in the world. And she's like, I don't have multiple personality disorder. And she says, my goal is to help you find a hemispheric home for each of your characters so that we can honor their identities and perhaps have more say in how we want to be in the world. By recognizing who is inside our cranium, we can take a more balanced brain approach to how we lead our lives. Many of us speak about how our head, our left hemisphere, is telling us to do one thing while our heart, our right hemisphere, is telling us to do the exact opposite. Some of us distinguish between what we think, left hemisphere, and what we feel, right hemisphere. Then mm. she talks about all these different types of mm. way people frame it. Yin yang, sensing mind or intuitive mind, if you're a Carl Jungian, yes. um, a small ego mind, capital ego mind, all these different ways. Mm. And she says, my goal has not been only to find a healthy balance between the functional abilities of my two hemispheres, but also to have more say about which character dominates my perspective at any given moment. Thank you. Right? Which is so That's kind of so cool. cool. Um, and uh, now we're into chapter 
16, her right and left minds. Awesome. She says, many of us spend an inordinate amount of time and energy degrading, insulting, and criticizing ourselves and others for having made a, quote, wrong or bad decision. Mm. When you berate yourself, have you ever questioned who inside of you is doing the yelling and at whom are you yelling? Uh Um, As biological creatures, we are profoundly powerful people because our neural networks are made up of neurons communicating with other neurons and circuits. Their behavior becomes quite predictable. Mm. The more conscious attention we pay to any particular circuit or the more time we spend thinking uh, specific thoughts, the more impetus those circuits or thought patterns have to run again with minimal external stimulation. Exactly. Right. She's like, listen, she's like, red is my favorite color. I'm going to always look for red because that's what I like. My brain is wired to just like red. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So her right mind is all about the richness of the present moment. All right. It's content. It is content, compassionate, nurturing, eternally optimistic. Mm. It's adventurous, celebrative of abundance and socially adept. It's open to new possibilities and things out of the box. I want to hang out with her. Right. It celebrates its freedom in the universe. It's not bogged down by the past. Yes, girl. And she says, listen, as much as I obviously adore the attitude, openness and enthusiasm, my left brain is equally amazing. Mm. Please remember that this is the character I just spent the better part of a decade resurrecting. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, it's the tool I use to communicate with the external world. It's truly one of the finest tools in the universe when it comes to organizing information. Mm. It's a magnificent multitasker and loves performing as many functions as it can at the same time. It's particularly gifted at identifying patterns. One of the most prominent characteristics of our left brain is its ability to weave stories, right? Ooh. Yes. Our left mind's language center is specifically designed to make sense of the world outside of us based on minimal amounts of information. It functions by taking whatever details it has to work with and then weaves them together in the form of a story. Most impressively, our left brain is brilliant in its ability to make stuff up and fill in the blanks where there are gaps in factual data. Right. So she says, my... And then she makes this leap and says, look, my left brain has been manufacturing stories, mm-hmm. um, these loops of thought, right? And she says, we don't teach our children that they need to tend carefully the garden of their minds mm-hmm. to weed out these loops of thought that maybe aren't these stories that aren't accurate about ourselves. Right, right. She says, the portion of my left mind that I chose not to recover was the part of my left hemisphere character that had the potential to be mean worry incessantly, or be verbally abusive to either myself or others. Frankly, I didn't like the way these attitudes felt inside my body. So she just made the choice to leave him. God, that's so fucking cool. So this uh, next to last chapter, I'm going to talk about 17, Own Your Power. And I just wrote, I feel like a lot of self-help is asking for left brain, right brain functions without explaining how. And this book explains that we all have the neuroanatomy to do so. That's, that is what I've been thinking for the last few minutes is I actually feel hopeful for the first time that if I just pay attention and, and practice enough yeah. of like right brain activities, yeah. I can strengthen those connections and maybe chill the fuck out a little bit and like ease off of the analytical neuroses, yeah. you know? Yeah. She talks about like the stuff that we've heard in other books, like I treat people with compassion yes. to not react, et cetera. Yes. Um, here's something I want to talk about in 18 cells and multidimensional circuitry, which sounds mm-hmm. really boring. Right. But she talks about it and it mainly immediately made me think of other authors we've talked about. Mm. So um, she says, everyone's brain is different, but here are some simple things I found to be true for mine. 
Her left mind's language centers and storytelling are back to functioning normally now. She finds that her mind not only spins a wild tale, but has a tendency to hook into negative patterns of thought. She says, I have found that the first step to getting out of these reverberating loops of negative thought or emotion is to recognize when I am hooked into these loops. For some of us, paying attention to what our brain is saying comes naturally, but some of us listening to our listening to learning to listen to our brain takes practice and patience. And I said, this is Mark Manson and Eckhart Tolle. Yes. Then she says, when I become conscious of what cognitive loops my brain is running, I then focus on how these loops feel physiologically inside my body. Do I feel alert? Is my breath deep or shallow? Do I feel tightness in my chest? Is my stomach upset? Um, uh, She says, all these neuronal loops can be triggered by all sorts of different stimulation. But once triggered, these different emotions produce a predictable physiological response that you can train yourself to consciously observe. And I said, that reminds me of Pima Chodron. Yes. Then she says, when my brain runs loops that feel harshly judgmental, counterproductive, or out of control, I wait 90 seconds for the emotional physiological response to dissipate. And then I speak to my brain as though it is a group of children. I say with sincerity, I appreciate your ability to think thoughts and feel emotions, but I'm really not interested in thinking these thoughts or feeling these emotions anymore. Please stop bringing this up. Essentially, I'm consciously asking my brain to stop hooking into specific thought patterns. Different people do it differently, of course. Some folks just use the the phrase, cancel, cancel, or exclaim to their brain, busy, I'm too busy, or they say, enough, enough, enough already. Yes. And I said, Brene Brown says, I'm feeling vulnerable, and I'm grateful for... Yes, Mm -hmm. and... um. Mel Robbins says five, four, three, three, two, one, one, and changes it. So then she says, I wholeheartedly believe that 99.999% of the cells in my brain and my body want me to be happy, healthy, and successful. Wow. So, um, this is so beautiful. Isn't it? It's like a love story for the brain and and inner well-being. It really is. And then she says, in extreme situations of cellular disregard, I use my authentic voice to put my language center's peanut gallery on a strict time schedule. (laughs) I give my storyteller full permission to wind rampantly from 9 to 9.30 a.m. and then again from 9 to 9.30 p.m. If it accidentally misses wine time, it's not allowed to re-engage in that behavior until its next allotted appointment. Thank you. Um. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. It's just funny. And I do love that because I've always said, like with writing, I talk to my brain like it's a toddler. I've always said that. I didn't know that. When I'm like, if I want to free write, I'm like, listen, you just have to do it for 10 minutes. And when that timer goes off, you're done. But yes. you have to do it for 10 minutes. But you have to do it for 10 minutes. That's exactly Sit right. there and grab your pen. That's exactly right. That's great. Um, still about cells, she gets a little too woo-woo for me where she says that she's spending time conversing with her brain cells and having a big love fest with the 50 trillion molecular genuses making up her body. She says, thank you, girls. Thanks for another great day to all of the cells in her body. She says it with an intense feeling of gratitude. And then she implores her cells, please heal me, and visualizes her immune cells responding. She unconditionally loves her cells with an open heart and a grateful mind. All right? She says, when my bowels move, I cheer myself for clearing that waste out of my body. When my urine flows, I admire the volume my bladder cells are capable of storing. When I'm having hunger pangs and can't get to food, I remind myself that I have fuel and fat stored on my hips. I said, this will, I'm, I'm a little too good for I, that. I, oh my God, I'm a little too good for that. I'm, I mean, I'm good. I'm laughing, I don't need. I'm laughing at your reaction because like part of me does think that's super sweet. And as someone who has not, thank God, been through a traumatic brain injury at this point in my life. I'm going like, oh, yeah, she knows those cells 
so much better than I do. But I'll, you know. I don't need to talk to my like, Colin. When I'm talking to my Colin, it's like, oh, hold on. We're almost to the toilet. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it's like, listen, bitch, not now. But here's her point. She says, the focused human mind is the most powerful instrument in the universe. Mm. And through the use of language, our left brain is capable of directing or impeding our physical healing and recovery. And for yes. that, I said, you know, you're right. All right. Our last chapter that we're talking about, finding your deep inner peace. To experience peace does not mean that your life is always blissful. It means you are capable of tapping into a blissful state of mind amidst the normal chaos of hectic life. Sounds like the four agreements. Step one. You can live in heaven when everyone else is in hell. That's right. Step one to experiencing inner peace is the willingness to be present in the right here, right now. Hmm. I don't know what step two is. And then she talks about... um, Just kind of her experience, you know, she talks about slowing down our minds, being aware of our extraneous thoughts, mm-hmm. think about your breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really kind of wonderful and beautiful. And I, I I, absolutely love, she says, deep body massage is great. I said yes. Oh, and then here oh. she wrote, um, <laughs> as, and I wrote, Alice going to hate this. <laughs> I forgot about Alice. <laughs> Remembering that we are energy beings designed to perceive and translate energy into neural code may help you become more aware of your own energy dynamics and intuition. Can you sense a mood of a room when you first walk in? I said, Alice, this part is not for you. This maze is not not for you. But Martha might. Really Martha Martha it. probably will really enjoy it. She also draws angel cards, like angel tarot cards. She says ultimately everything. Wait, I'm sorry, Jill Bolte Taylor draws angel tarot cards. She sure does. Draws them as in the art for them. Multiple times for the day. I also draw angel cards several times a day to help me stay focused on what I believe is important for life. Draws as in from a deck, not draws as in sketches. Draws as in from a deck. Okay. She goes tarot. I didn't know there was an angel tarot card. Ultimately, everything we experience is a product of ourselves and their circuitry. Once you have tuned into how different circuits feel inside your body, then you can pick and choose how you want to be in the world. That sounds fucking awesome. Doesn't it? It does. Um... I wrote, I'm in my right brain from all that group therapy. My compassion comes out when someone is in need. And then I can shift into my left brain to help. I said, I'm a fucking baller. I love you. Go, girls. I was talking to myself. Thank you. Um, And then she talks about tending the garden and has a cool couple appendices. Anyway... I recommend this book for everybody. I love this book. I'm done. I would I love talk to talk about it for another hour, but I'm done. I would love to reread it. Yeah. Um, Here, you can have it. This is exciting. Return it to me. I wanted a library. Thank you. Um, Thanks for this, That was a long one. I apologize. No, no, no. No. I mean, this one, I think we're talking about a woman who was a like premier neuroscientist, had a stroke, came back to tell us all about it, and has her research undoubtedly has revolutionized the way we deal with For sure. healing people For sure. from traumatic brain injuries. So, like, yes, I bow down. Thank you. Thank oh, you, my God. Jill Bolte-Taylor. So what did she get right, Lisa? I mean, what I think she got right was giving you the inside look of what it feels like to have a stroke and what the experience of, of having a stroke and giving you the scientific explanation of why that is. It's Fascinating, And, you know, this is, in paying attention to how I'm feeling listening to this book, this is the first book we've reviewed in a while where I'm feeling truly optimistic mm. leaving this. Because a lot of it is like, 
you could do this if you just got your shit together, like Rachel Hollis, or it's like, it's a little bit comparison-y or whatever, but this is just like, the human mind's capable of great things. You've already got this incredible computer inside of you and these these incredible systems to perceive. It's so fascinating because it's so practical, Patty, and yet her experience is so so woo-woo. And it's, she's Patty Wanda. She, oh my God, she's Patty Wanda. Hashtag Patty Wanda. Or is she Wanda um, Patty. practical woo woo? Or no, Patty woo woo. Patty woo woo. Patty woo. I like Patty Wanda. Patty Wanda. Patty Wanda. Um, um, was there anything you hated about the book? Um, listen, I understand why Alice didn't like it. Alice wanted to read <laughs> this and understand why how her friend Martha was doing. And yeah. what she got was a lot of neuroscience. But mm-hmm. the neuroscience really sets up her explanation for why yeah. you can live in a state of nirvana. Yes, yes. And I'm sure that um, list of 40 things I needed the most was also, like, super amazing. Um, yeah, if you have somebody who um, has had stroke or is recovering from yeah. some kind of major uh, illness, I think it's very, very helpful. Awesome. I mean, like, I think the book is probably worth buying just for that. Yeah. And then who's this book perfect for and who's it not perfect for? It's not perfect for Alice. That's right. Um, um, but it is perfect for people who love STEM. Stam. Stam. Um, it's perfect for people who have somebody who's been affected by stroke mm-hmm. or who have uh, if strokes run in the family. I think it would be interesting to know, like, what happens. Aneurysms run in my family. Then I, you would definitely, I know you loved this book. Um, I also think it's interesting if you don't understand the concept of left brain or right brain. Yeah. And you aren't 100% into this belief of, like, energy is all around us, et cetera. I think that this book does a nice job of laying out the scientific reasons as to why you can actually experience that. Yeah, it actually seems like uh, it's not the first book I would think to turn to, but if I'm like trying to help my non-spiritual friends access a a place of that, this might be the book to do it, you know? I think so. And and because she doesn't put any religion to it, she doesn't put, it's just just kind of like... Here is it literally how I felt. I felt at one with the universe. Mm-hmm. I have no spatial awareness, so how could I not feel at one with the universe? Yeah, when you when you take away analyzing every little thing and trying to categorize and you just are. Yeah, what if is I am like? sitting here and I am connected to the chair, am I not one with the chair? And if uh, the chair is not touching the floor, am I not one with the chair and the floor? And yeah, if you are yeah, not yeah. touching the floor, how am I not one with the chair and the floor and you, Mr. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it seems obvious in that regard, but because we are ourself, our ego makes us a solid. This idea of being a fluid is so fascinating. I love that. And was there anything you put into practice from this book? No. Because, I mean, it doesn't seem, it doesn't <laughs> well, seem like about, it's like a... We, we talk about this book all the time. So I work on switching between my left and right hemispheres for work, but mm. I would like to start switching for just kind of life. Yeah, but absolutely. I do. But I wrote, I think I wrote, like I, when somebody is in need, I immediately You're go into my to right hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And then if they want, I can go into less, left hemisphere and start solving yes. problems. Yes, And do you have a homework assignment for me? Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. I'm secretly hoping that uh-huh. you will assign me some sort of activity to get in my right brain. I know exactly what I want. This yes. is what I thought. Great. I would love for you to try three or four different things throughout the week to see what gets you in your right brain. <gasps> I'm going to pull out my painting set. Great. And I'm going to paint some shit. I would love that. And I, I ask for three or four because sometimes when you're stressed— 
whatever you usually do doesn't work. Doesn't work. So Try I would something love, new. Yes, right, right, right. Like if you want to do yoga, if you want to go for a run, if you want to have a bubble bath, if you want to um, meditate, if you want right. to um, sing, if you, you know what I mean? Like yeah. just, and just start to clock what gets you into your right brain. If it's freeway driving, like whatever it is. Yeah, that's really cool. And I'm really excited to see like, what would happen if I scheduled 30 minutes a day of right brain time and treated it not like, oh, I'm slacking off or I'm not being productive or whatever, but treated it as like a necessary. It's very important. So important. Yeah. And I don't, the thing is, I don't think we need a full 30. I think if you give your, and you truly get into it, it takes probably five or six to get into your right brain. But then if you spend 10, oh my God, you're blissed out. Oh my God. This is wonderful. Lisa, thank you so much for this thank for you. this amazing report of this incredible book. It's so good. I love it. And, and if and you were listening and it sounded very sciencey, good. Good. Because <laughs> that's right. Everybody needs more. STEM! Women in STEM! Women, women, women in STEM! Thank you. And with that, everybody, life, life is abundant! Is Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know you can also find us on the social medias, Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast, Twitter at Podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.